0: This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the
1: SportsNet Radio network. Okay, so expectations are always high. Expectations are always gold uh, for Team Canada at the World Junior Hockey Championships and this year it is no difference. Uh, please be joined by the general manager, the architect of the squad, the one and only James Boyd, who is also the GM of the Ottawa 67s of the OHL. James How are you today. doing great, Jeff. Uh, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, always much appreciated. Um, at, at what point, I, I am curious, at what point in your, your, in your mind do you start to piece together this team? Like, is there a, a definite starting point? Like, okay, now I'm going to start dedicating, you know, mental resources to what this team is going to look like? Or has this just sort of been an evolving process?
0: It's an evolving process, and there's a blueprint to it. You know, we start, first we start tracking players at the under-17 level. Um, with the national teams, and then they work their way through the under-18 program, both the World Championships, the Ivan and But then, you know, we have an eye on players that aren't part of the program, uh, but are trending in the right direction. So we have a pretty good idea of uh, the players that are going to make up the team, but the bad group of players is about 50, you know, when you're looking coast to coast. Mm-hmm. So then it becomes, you know, tracking the players into the start of the season, who's going to be available from the NHL, of course, and who which players are having, you know, put a big step forward, which players are healthy. And then the conversation begins with the coaching staff of, um, you know, what type of team um, are we going to ice and and what players best fit that mold. So, uh, you know, Alan Miller from Hockey Canada and myself and and Scott Salmon from Hockey Canada, we we work closely together to put together the team and it's constant dialogue um, with the coaches, with uh, our management groups, which made up of general managers in all three of the major junior leagues in Canada. Um, to make sure that we're, you know, and putting together the best team. And we are. The emphasis is, it's not an all star team. You know, we're not taking the most skilled players. Mm-hmm. We're taking specialized players. We need the best penalty killers. We need the best power play guys. We need the, you know, flex players that can play up and down the lineup. We need, you know, we need a power play defenseman. We need penalty killing defenseman. So that's that's where the that's a, the fun part is the discussion with the staff of who fits those roles. And then you know you whittle it down. You bring mm-hmm. those players to the final. Uh, a selection camp where the coaches get to see them live and get a uh, a real sense of where they're at and then ultimately uh, you know we make the decision together but it's a long process it's a fun process and really it's culmination of a few years' work
1: you know it's interesting you mentioned going back to something like the u seventeens when you're putting together a team and, and starting to you know uh, get a sense of what it's going to look like when it matures into this uh into this squad at the uh the the u twenty level. Um, you know, I mean, I don't need to tell you this. Development isn't a straight line. Um, it's a bunny hop. There's two steps forward and one hop back, or two hops back and and one hop forward. How much do you keep that in mind? Like, okay, you know what? The U17, this kid was here, but at the U18, he was here, and now here we are at the the U20. And um, you know, how do you how do you essentially how do you how do you grade? Uh, a learning curve or a development curve for a time in a player's life that is so up and down and so potentially volatile. It's got to be a difficult exercise.
0: Yeah, it is. It is for sure. And we're dealing with, like I said, a big pool of players, you know, you're dealing with, uh, there's three teams at the under 17 level. They're all competitive. Um, you know, three Canadian teams. And then, you know, now, you know, we're looking at all different age groups and, you know, you've got, of course, uh, Uh, Connor Bedard, uh, who's born in 2005, and we've got uh, uh, you know Joshua Raw, who's born in 2003. Big difference, you know, big difference in the development in the in the junior career. So we're looking at you know where players are in the development curve, but also who's playing really well at the time uh, the selection camp invites go out. So you know we had players at Mm -hmm. selection camp. uh, I'll use an example: a player who um, was close but didn't make the team. You know we didn't uh, select for the team Jordan Dumais. For the Halifax uh, Mooseheads. Yep. Having a phenomenal year and really heading into, uh, um, you know, the final decisions for selection camp. The games that we really owned in on, he had six points, then he had a hat trick, then he had six points. <laughs> you know, kind of put the final stamp on it. Um, and, and that's a big part of it. You know, Caden Bank here, who's coming in, player, plays in the uh, Cam Loops, uh, one of the hottest players in the CHL over the, over the final few weeks before selection camp. So really put his stamp on it. And so there's a lot of players here uh, who are playing really well, uh, and that's a big part of uh, when you're making those final decisions.
1: You know, the NHLers uh, uh, going to joining the team is is an interesting, always sidebar to all of this. How does how does that process work? Is that does that begin with a request from Hockey Canada? Do the teams indicate to you before? Uh, if they'd make players available, what's the dynamic there between this program and the NHL for eligible kids?
0: Well, that's, that's from the hockey Canada, um, you know, office that's led by Scott Salmon, um, who of course involved with all national teams from the Olympics right down to the under 17 and has those relationships with the NHL teams. And, you know, there's NHL players that are coming to the world championships every year. They're coming to the world juniors every year. Um, and, uh, you know, the Spengler Cup, other events. So Scott has those relationships with the NHL teams. And really, he leads that dialogue. Um, so that's a dialogue that goes on, you know, for a period of months. And really, it's NHL teams that are going to make the decision. It's their decision. Well, our job is to prepare for, you know, any eventuality. You know, that uh, uh, we have players that are still playing in the NHL that, you know, they're, they're age eligible to return. So we can dream about, you know, what would it look like, uh, you know, with a Wyatt Johnson or a Cole Sillinger in the lineup. Uh, but we know that that's not going to happen. Uh, we need to, we need to narrow it down that. Hey, these, what are the possibilities? Who could we realistically end up with? And then proceed like we're not going to end up with them, but knowing what the team must look like if it happens. So uh, we're fortunate this year to get three players back, um, which is huge for us because they're at another level. You can tell in practice, then the games they're, uh, you know, they're at. Yeah. They're not just great players, but they're at that NHL level. So, um, but you got to prepare for everything. So, it's uh, Scott does a great job with that, and we're fortunate this year to um, benefit from a couple players.
1: Um, Connor Bedard and Adam Fantilli. Whenever you see players wearing the bubbles, you say, "Okay, this kid is special because he's made the team as an underager and he's got to wear the, the the full face shield." Um, how do you blend these players in and, and what are the expectations for both of them? I always try to temper my expectations uh, with younger players. I know it's hard with someone like Connor Bedard because every time you say, don't get your hopes too high, this is a different, more challenging environment. He makes a pass like we just saw the other night uh, to Shane Wright, which is at the elite level. Uh, what are expectations for players uh, like Connor Bedard, like Adam Fentilli? Well,
0: they're going to be key players on our team. We try to throw cold water on all the expectations, of course. <laughs> There's enough pressure coming from
1: yeah.
0: uh, from everywhere else. And we do keep in mind they are young players. And, you know, Bedard is wowed us. He wowed us in August at the World Juniors. He wowed us last December at the World Juniors. He can do things with the puck that, you know, the first time uh, – th- things that people have never seen before. Um, and so, that, you know, he's a key player. But we keep in mind that, uh, you know, he's part of a group there of, of really, really good players. And, you know, he's, he's – He's a talent for sure, and he's going to be a big part of our team. But Fantilli and Bedard are very different players, you know, in my mind. I think Bedard's got the great shot and the ability to find the open ice, and, and, you know, of course, he's got a great hand, and uh, he can really score goals. Fantilli, he's really a uh, a speed merchant. You know, he's a big guy. He's fast. He's he's on top of pucks. He can make things happen, uh, you know, out of out of nowhere. The puck, puck hops at the blue line, you know, he's the master of anticipation getting in on the breakaway. So very different players. Um, they're both going to be big parts of our team and effective parts of our team. But, you know, coming in, we've got uh, uh, other players that have a lot of experience. we got, of course, Dylan Gunther was playing in the NHL a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> you know, Rick scored his first goal in the NHL. So, um, you know, they're, they're, all the pressure is not on them. We we're going we to share it, but we got a pretty good forward group here.
1: Uh, when I look at the tournament, um, first of all, Russia's not part of it. I look at it and I say, okay, the biggest competition for Canada will come from the United States, as usual, uh, Sweden and Finland, dark horse here, Slovakia, uh, even though they don't have Yuri Slavkovsky, still some really good players in that lineup. How would you handicap the field, James?
0: You know what? I can't say at this point because I haven't seen them. I haven't seen them. I know what they look like on paper, I- but... I like to get a sense. that We're going to head over and watch a game here this afternoon, and you know, prior to our exhibition game this evening. But uh, you know, I, I know that uh, Sweden has six first-round picks. I think in their forward lineup. But uh, you know, I really going to like to see them and see what type of chemistry the teams have before I can give you an honest answer there. So, like, we're a work in progress, okay. and there were some nerves and some, um, you know, we were out of sync a little bit. I thought in game number one. Uh, I think that the the teams are going to get better heading into the tournament. I'd like to give you a better idea or handicap uh, prior to the the game on Boxing Day when we got a real sense of of what those teams look like. Uh,
1: Okay, a couple, uh, couple and we'll let you get on with your day. Um, How would you... What would you say the strongest part of Team Canada is? Where where are the? Like I look at it and I say, man, these forwards are awesome. Then I look at the blue line and say, well, hold on a second here, that top four is elite. Where would you say the strength of Team Canada lies?
0: Well, it's definitely in the depth, definitely in the depth of the lineup, and I think that you know it's a team that's going to roll four lines. They're going to play all their defensemen, and uh, and really it, it's a fast team. It's a big team. So we've got uh, mm-hmm. you know when I, when I look. At our lineup, we've got, of course, got Bedards, and we've got uh, Logan Stankoven, who know uh, was a key player in the summertime with our team, and we got we got Shane Wright and, and Brendan Othman, all those names. But when I look down the lineup, we got Reed Schaefer, six foot floor, We got uh, Nathan Gaucher, six foot floor, Zach Austin, six foot three. Uh, Colton Dock is six foot floor, We got Fantilli at six two, six three. Um, you know, it's it's a big group. And then when you look down the defense court, too. Um, we've got Zellweger uh, returning from the summertime, but we got Ethan Delmastro, six foot four, Jack Matier, six foot, pushing yeah. six foot five. Um, you know, Tyson Hines is six foot three. Nolan Allen is six foot three. It's a big, big group. So it's a big group that skates well. Yeah. Um, you know, I think defensively they're going to be right on top of you, and they're going to be hard to play against. But there's a lot of skill there too. So I think we're going to play everybody. We're going to play with pace and play the game as fast as we can and right. uh, that's going to be the strength of the group is allowing the skill to take over in those you know during those games.
1: Um, uh, one final one and it's the uh, the obvious Hockey Canada question what uh, the, that organization has been going through and now there's a new board um, and you know a lot of a lot of how people are seeing Hockey Canada through the filter uh, of the 2018 situation I know from talking to agents. Um, that Hockey Canada has put, you know, these players through, a, you know, significant background checks, all social media, everything. What type of guardrails um, does Hockey Canada have in place? What kind of conversations do you have with the kids knowing that, you know, the last time I talked to someone at Hockey Canada over the weekend, it was all about, you know, repairing relationships and rebuilding trust with, you know, Canadians and fans and the government and partners, et cetera. You know, how do, how do you talk to the team about things like this?
0: Well, the team has gone through, uh, you know, rigorous tr- training and, and, uh, and, and we welcome that, you know, understanding the, the scrutiny the organization is under and we tell the players like they don't have to do anything. They don't have to do anything superhuman. They just need to be themselves because they, this is, there's a lot of pressure here, but this is an opportunity too. it's an opportunity to show people that this is a respectful group that, uh, you know, is willing to, uh, uh, do things the right way. They're, uh, they're willing to respect the game and, and you know, undertake some of this uh, training and spreading the, um, you know, spreading the good word. So I think that, you know, these guys are it's a good group, um, you know, things that happened in the past, um, you know, it's unfortunate. Uh, it's concerning. Uh, and we share that. Uh, but this group here is, uh, uh, you know, an excellent role model for young kids. And that's what we're going to show. They just need to be themselves and they need to do the right things. And I think that people uh, will recognize that.
1: We look forward to it. Um, James, thanks as always for stopping by. Good luck with uh, with Team Canada, and when it's all over, good luck with the with the 67s, uh, another good squad. Uh, thanks as always for stopping by, James. Much appreciated.
0: Thanks a lot, Jeff.
1: There he is. James Boyd is the general manager of Team Canada, the World Juniors, the U-20s. Uh, this is a team that is not just expected to medal, but are, with all due respect, USA, Sweden, Finland, outside shot, Slovakia. And this is the team that's expected to come uh, to come back with the gold. Uh, they are the uh, the defending gold medal champions. Uh, we shall see. Game one is on Boxing Day as Team Canada faces off against Czechia. Um, and like, there's some really good talent on this team, folks. Uh, I know that you know, I asked James, you know, what the uh, what the strength is of the squad, and he said depth and size, and that's true. Um, there are elite. Forwards. There'll probably be some blowout games along the way. That's how good this team is. Uh, and we've seen that of recent note. Um, the blue line is exceptional and bolstered by Brant Clark. Um, James mentioned Olin zellweger He's a, a draft pick of the Anaheim Ducks. Most likely will anchor the power play. He's another one that's on the horizon in that pipeline of, of great prospects. I still do, and I think a lot of people do as well, wonder about the goaltending uh, with Canada. It's been that issue for a long time now. We shall see. It's a team that's loaded. It's a team that's deep. We'll see how they do between the pipes. Uh, Coming up in Hour 2, Mike Crusoe from The Athletic comments on The Wild. They're hot. And Brant Myers who wrote a really interesting book last year called Painkiller. His life playing hockey with addiction. Brant Myers next on The Merrick Show.
0: Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans.
2: The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network.
1: Welcome back to the program. Mike Russo coming up at the bottom of the hour from The Athletic. We'll talk about the Minnesota Wild. That team continues their little role five games in a row, and they're looking good, and so do those reverse retros that make us think of the Minnesota North Stars, and that's always a good thing. Uh, In the meantime, someone I've wanted to get on the show here for a while. Uh, Brant Myers played in the NHL from 94 to 2003. Uh, Drafted by the Tampa Bay Lightning, played with them. Also the Flyers, the Sharks, the Preds, Capitals, and Boston Bruins uh, in the course of... Uh, those years was suspended four times for failed drug tests as well. He documents uh, as much as he can in a book that came out, it came out last year, but I think is particularly poignant uh, for people around this time of year where it can be emotionally challenging for people and everyone's fighting battles um, and fighting, a lot of people are fighting addictions. And, you know, the Brant Myers story is one. Uh, of addiction, uh, and it's one of also overcoming uh, and enduring. Uh, the book is called Painkiller, uh, Brant Myers' uh, a Memoir of Big League Addiction. Brant Myers joins me now. Brant, thanks so much for doing this. I know it's been a while. I've been trying to put this together, and finally we found the sweet spot of the bat. So listen, man, thanks so much for coming on today. How you doing?
3: Hey, hey Jeff. I'm doing well, man. Uh, I appreciate you having me on and uh, absolutely love your show.
1: Well listen, uh, I, I wanted to do that I mean I watched your entire career um, and, and as a professional covered it as well. and before reading this book, I, I thought I knew your story. Um, <laughs> obviously you never know everything about about someone um, and I remember you know watching you uh, playing in junior as well. Um, I'll be honest with you and I, I read the book last year and I, I reread it uh, when you and I started texting and I'll be honest with you it's a hard book to read. Like it's it's really <laughs> yeah, well, it it's the, really difficult. It maybe it, maybe may, well maybe it's well I I want to get there, but I mean just as someone, yeah, you know, I'm you know I'm I'm getting older like we all are, and I'm I'm reading this and I'm I'm imagining you know watching someone who has you know all this talent and all this future, you know, destroying himself page after page after page, and you're just waiting for that that one moment for it all. Uh, all to stop and I want to get into a lot of it here with you but um, initially how challenging was it because it's a really brave decision you've done a lot of brave things in your life and I'm sure this is top of the list you know what made you decide to write this book
3: well I I, honestly it was really never something that you know I was too keen on doing and I think because of uh, the one person in my life which was my daughter Chloe who is just a she was a only three days old when I went into my fifth treatment center. And uh, when I was writing it, I thought about um, some of the graphic details in there and that one day she'd write it, and that was really the only person that I was second-guessing on, on releasing it. But uh, um, you know what, Jeff? Once the book was finished, and um, uh, I think around maybe two, three months later when people started reading it, uh, it became evident and clear on, on why I wrote it. It wasn't necessarily that much about Brant Myers and my story. I think that it had to do with, um, you know, for me, the, the you know, hundreds of people that have that reached out to me in, 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 in terms of the book and, and how it's maybe helped them or a family member.
1: Well, there are uh, countless, like when you put yourself out like this, um, you put that type of positive energy out to the universe, you know, the the right people will be attracted to you. Um, I'm not asking for names, trust me, but how many (laughs) former teammates or how many people you played either with or against who were battling like you were with addictions um, have come to you and said, you know, I knew it was bad, I did know it was this bad, I've gone through some things, I'm still going through some things, what should I do? Like, how mm-hmm. much have you been someone that, that can now offer advice to ex either teammates or people you played against?
3: Yeah, that's that was a really surprising thing for me because, as you know, in the fraternity of, of professional sports, just not hockey, that we're, we're, we're sort of a closed book when it comes to that kind of stuff, and I think that's why... I believe that, you know, when the role came about it with Los Angeles Kings in 2015, they sort of um, decided to maybe break that stigma a little bit. So the, the friends that I've had, um, that I've played with, there's been countless guys that have sent emails or got a hold of me through social media since maybe we, you know, didn't uh, keep in touch over the years. But, uh, but yeah, it's been surprisingly, uh, you know, quite a, quite a few guys. <laughs> Hmm.
1: You know, I can. Um, you know, one of the things that's uh, that's interesting in in your book is, you know, the the nature of <sighs> the nature of a how you can hide and deceive, but also too the way, you know, managers can sort of you know shuffle off problems and not want to address them themselves. You know, I can remember talking to one manager about, and there was one very. Uh, real tough player real 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 tough and a real good fighter as well and and he was uh, fighting various addictions um, and they had tried to help him a couple of times and, and it hadn't worked and in instead of you know continuing to try to help this player, and you know, there's one manager said, look, I was, I was watching a game uh, one day and I, I saw a team's franchise player getting pushed around and no one could do anything about it. And so I, I called that general manager and said, hey, if you're, are you looking for some protection for your franchise guy? Because I have someone that, uh, that, uh, that can help you with that. And instead of, you know, in, instead of helping that player, he essentially you know passed the buck on to another team. That's not mm-hmm. a new story. That's one that you're familiar with. Um, That's one, you know, you've heard, you've lived, all of it. Um, When you hear other stories like that that are in some ways similar to yours, what goes through your mind?
3: Well, quite honestly, Jeff, I mean, the one thing for me was that it started in San Jose with with Dean Lombardi, Doug Wilson, and and Daryl Sutter. And they treated me almost like a family member. And they were, you know, I was already in my second treatment center at that point. And then, and then Daryl really never gave up on me, even after um, my fifth treatment center. And and, uh, and then Dean and and Daryl were in L.A. when I was there. So, I just had such a a, a respect factor f- for those guys that the the door wasn't shut. They cared about Brant the person and not the hockey player. And but, but don't get me wrong, I mean, I, I also played for eight other general managers as well. <laughs> so, um, yeah. you know, the, I, I don't know if, if passing the buck would be, be the right term. But I think now um, with, uh, you know, maybe a little bit more time, um, hopefully, uh, again, that, uh, that stigma is uh, uh, slowly losing its appeal.
1: Um, you know, a, a couple of things as well that, um, that, that I wanted to mention to you. Uh, I remember having a conversation with Darren McCarty, who, you know, documented uh, quite extensively his situation and continues to talk about it. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember asking him when in his career and when in his life he hit rock bottom. And he said, mm-hmm. Brant, he said something to me that has stuck with me ever since, and I think about it often. He said... You know, Jeff, you never hit rock bottom because there's mm-hmm. always lower you can go. You can. There's no such thing as rock bottom. He said, "All you can do is decide to stop digging." Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, "It's, it's one of the more." I, I'd never thought about it like that before because we always consider, okay, well, what is rock bottom? And he said, like, "There's no rock bottom. You can always mm-hmm. get worse. You just decide mm-hmm. to stop." What was it? What was it like for you, Brent?
3: Well, it was obviously painful. I mean, I didn't really understand what was happening while I was putting myself in those situations where, you know, uh, maybe the second rehab wasn't enough, and then the third, and then a lifetime ban for the fourth, and then I had to, you know, go to my fifth treatment center uh, a year and a half after retirement. and. I think that once um it never, you know my rock bottom wasn't necessarily in hockey it was it, it was a, a night at my sister's where i where I write about it in the book where I blocked out and yeah. um I ended up you know basically destroying her house and uh uh getting physical with some people and I don't remember a thing other than being handcuffed uh in the snow at about two thirty in the morning and with the cops on my back and uh completely broke financially, spiritually. And uh, when I woke up the next morning, um, you know, I just, you know, I hit my knees and I just said, I, I really need some help here. And um, what do you know? Uh, the next day the NHL called and said, are you committed to, to long-term treatment? And I said, yes. And I said, how long do I have to go for? And they said, uh, uh, it doesn't really matter how long it is. You just need to get on that plane. And uh, so I got on the plane and I went for eight months. And, um, you know, that was, uh, you know, February I guess it would have been 18th was was my rock bottom day
1: you know I have uh, we all do Um, I have one very close friend who's going through something like this and has battled for a number of years and it's hard uh, it's hard to watch them go through it. It's hard to, to watch the process because the process is not okay. You step out of rehab and you're fine and then mm-hmm. your, your second life begins, you know, part of the process is, you know, falling down again and, and getting back up. And, and it's really challenging for people that, uh, for people like me, um, because mm-hmm. you're in a really good position to offer advice for people mm-hmm. like me that have friends that are going through something like this, how would mm-hmm. you advise them? because you know sometimes I just want to give tough love other times I just want to be completely compassionate and sort of surrender to whatever you need to get you better um and I don't know there's there's no rule book on this there's no guide book what kind of advice would you offer friends of people that were going through something similar to what you went through
3: oh three words never give up I mean (laughs) you never give up on somebody uh if somebody gave up on me after the fourth um, treatment center, then I wouldn't be talking to you today. And and that's how I approach any addict or any uh, alcoholic or somebody that's struggling with the disease. And the word disease, people have to understand that's exactly what this is. Um, I don't think you'd be uncompassionate to somebody that was dealing with cancer, or leukemia, or some type of life-threatening uh, disease. And, and yet, when people look at, addicts or or alcoholics they look at them differently for some reason and we're just we're struggling with a mental illness um, that um, you know if you don't take your daily medicine for this thing which for me is is number one spiritually um, and secondly um, surrounding myself with good people um, you know uh, it, it can get to you really quick so I just think the advice is never give up I know it's frustrating um I frustrated a lot of people in my life, not only in hockey but you know in my family and surrounding my myself with with, with other people um but yeah, I just think that you never know when the light's gonna go on
1: mm-hmm. who who are some of the um who are some of the players that you played with um that stuck with you all the way or have been you know able to to be there for support for you, Brent?
3: Well, geez, I mean, when I was when I was playing, you know, I had guys like Owen Nolan and and and, and Dave Lowry and Paul Coffey that were, you know, unbelievable to me. Um, you know, those those guys in that that San Jose dressing room with Mike Ricci and Vincent D'Amfus, and they were just so supportive. And Stefan Matteau, who was my roommate for two years, um, but you know, like I I, I just think that on. Every team, there was, there was a few guys that, that, you know, would continually put their hand up, but a lot of them didn't understand wh- wh- why I was continuing to uh, keep digging that, you know, that hole, as they say. Um, but, um, you know, it, like I said, Jeff, I, I had a lot of support, and, and it wasn't until, you know, I had to look at myself in the mirror um, to, uh, to really get mm-hmm. back on track again.
1: What did you enjoy about hockey at the pro level?
3: <laughs> what did I enjoy? The food on the plane—it was, yeah. uh, <laughs> it, it was unbelievable. <laughs> but uh, no, uh, I, I, you know, you know what? I I think that for me there were there were moments during my career where I'd sit on the bench. I didn't play a lot, and I remember I'd be we'd be playing in Chicago. And the game would be tied you know four, four and with five minutes to go in the game, and it was so exciting and I'd just look around and I'd see you know twenty thousand people in the stands, and I'd see some of my idols on the ice and i I would just take it all in and I just said I couldn't believe that uh, how lucky I was to be playing in the in the National Hockey League, and my dream was to play one shift, and I ended up playing you know a number of years and uh, but what I missed today. Or probably, you know, getting together with the boys and going for dinner, or in the mornings talking to the trainers, having a coffee, taping your sticks, watching the other team pregame skate, um, just that kind of stuff.
1: You know, there's a, uh, the, the, there's a part of your book which which really floored me, and I had never thought about this before. Um, you were writing about having a fight with Ryan Vandenbush, and... Man, Vandenbush has been through a lot. Like he was one of those guys who was never the biggest guy, but I always said, and like you know what it's like, you know, he might not have won every fight, but you always knew you were in a fight when you fought Ryan Vandenbush, and Vandenbush yeah. always got a li- at least a little piece of you. Like that was, oh boy. Um, and you write in the book, you said, I, I, when I fought him, I was, I was fighting sober, and I, it didn't feel good fighting sober. Can you describe <clears throat> that feeling? Because uh, that one, honestly, I, I had I decided to stop, put the book down, and think about that for a while.
3: Yeah, well, I had a reward system when I was drinking or doing cocaine, and the reward system was okay. I got to get ready to go to battle here, and but when I'm done this battle, I've got about you know three, four, five, six hours of entertainment after. And when I when I took away that reward system for after for after the fight was done, my life became um uh insulated and scary because um number one I, I I'm not a mean guy naturally i'm I think I'm just a big fun you know loving teddy bear type of guy, so I had to turn that switch and the switch was really hard to turn on when I wasn't drinking and I remember talking to Bob the Proby about this and he said the same thing that you know once he got sober it was really tough to turn that mean guy switch on and when I was fighting Mm. uh Brian and everybody else that I was fighting when I was sober I didn't have my reward system anymore I had to go home you know I had to just sort of sit with my feelings and go to bed at midnight and um you know it just it was a really tough thing to get up for
1: you know the um uh, the parts of the book where you where you write about Bob Probert and you, and you talk about Bob Probert like uh, we're all on the same page here he was you know as as much as he was scary um and as much as he was you know um uh, the the champ for a lot of years um there was a kindness off the ice to Bob and a real mm. gentleness to Bob, to 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 Bob off the ice as well and and even I mean I remember having a conversation with Mel Engelstad once and I asked him what his biggest thrill in the NHL was, and he said, fighting Bob Probert. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, he said it was the biggest. He, he said he, when he fought Probert, you know, Probert hit him with three in the face, and all he could think about is, how cool is this? Bob Probert's punching me in the face. This is this, this is incredible. But he... um He said something really interesting, too. He said, you know, at that point in Bob's career, I mean, this is when Bob was playing with the Blackhawks and probably late into his career with the Blackhawks, and, you know, uh, Engelstad was a a young kid and sort of asked him, I think it was a training camp game, said, hey, uh, would you do me the honors, Mr. Probert? And Bob said something to him that's that's pretty interesting because a lot of veterans won't do it because there's no win. Like, well, if you win the fight, like you're supposed to, but if you lose, it's a huge deal. And Probert said something to him along the lines of, hey, man, you know what? Older guys did it for me when I was starting, so I'll do it for a kid as well. Even though it's an absolutely no-win situation for Bob Probert, he still yeah. did it. Like, there was this underlying kindness on and off the ice that Probert really had. I mean, you write about him in your book, but I've always felt that way about Bob.
3: Yeah, I remember when when I was training in in Venice and at Gold's gym. And I walked in and my trainer said, Hey, there's a guy warming up on the bike. He's going to be your workout partner this year. Go say hi. So I said, yeah, okay. I had no idea who it was. And uh, I start walking up and and I look up and I, and I see it's Proby. And quite honestly, for me, there was a few guys in my life that were like bigger than God. And you know, you had number 99 and 66. And then to me it was number 24 and all of a sudden, I, I sit next to him, and he puts his arm around me. He so said, he told me how much he hated working out. And he said, do we really have to ride this thing? And I'm like, I guess so. <laughs> and uh, and uh, we, we, we just, you know, then you start hanging out and going for dinner and meeting Danny and the family. And, and, and the next thing you know, you guys are riding Harleys together and, and becoming friends. And, and it, he was just uh, anybody that, that didn't know Bob. Um it was a shame because he was just such a, an amazing guy off the ice. Um that uh you know, it was just tragic to see what happened to him at such an early age. And uh I miss I miss him every day.
1: You know, you write about him and there's a section where you talk about and mention, you know, Wade Belock. Um, and he had certainly um, some issues, and, and Derek Bugard, and, and those were well uh, well documented. I, I think it's one of the things that we always wonder about. Do you think it's the nature of that uh, that position in hockey that that leads to uh, a life of abuse, or? Do you think people that are prone to abuse are attracted to that line of work? I'm, I'm sure you've thought about this one. Do you, do you have, you, have you come to any conclusions on it?
3: Oh, yeah. Well, personally for me and, and a lot of the other tough guys that have dealt with the same issues, is that I mentioned it in my prior statement about being able to turn that switch on and off and having, having a reward system. I mean, listen, the truth is yeah. back in junior as a 17-year-old when I, when I had about, I don't know, 42 fights, um, if I wasn't able to give myself that reward system after the game, there's no way that I would have been able to handle that job as, as a teenager. There's no way. So, right. so for me, it, it, it was almost like a perfect storm. Um, you know, alcoholism sort of ran in my family, um, and I found that when I was drinking... That I wasn't thinking about going into Boston on a Saturday night, or and then having to go, you know, back to back into Chicago yep. or New York on a Tuesday. Um, the, but but when I was sober, uh, I was constantly thinking about it. So for me, it, it was an, an escape, and and I mm-hmm. think there is Jeff maybe a little bit, bit of a parallel there.
1: It's interesting. Um, you still follow the game? You still watch it? And uh, and, and if so, do you watch it differently now?
3: oh i love watching the game i i was i was playing poker with a buddy last night and we were uh we we had the flames game on in the background um so i uh i love watching it um it's uh you know i love hockey i just love hockey and you know me and you chatted prior and me and you probably could have talked for two three hours on stories you know and uh Oh yeah. yeah but do I but is it different uh, yeah, of course, but you know what in time, everything changes, and people adapt to to the way that um you know certain games evolve and change, and the skill set is off the charts. do I miss some of the games you know on hockey night in Canada in nineteen ninety six yeah um, but it's it's not nineteen ninety six anymore, <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, it's funny, too. Oh, by the way, did, did, you, did you ever uh, get a chance to have a look at that Boston-Minnesota game that I was telling you about? Did you ever get a chance <laughs> to have a peek at that one that just sort of popped up?
3: <laughs> well, well, it's funny because I, I, I'm a YouTube fanatic on old hockey fights, and I can't believe that I didn't know about that hockey game until you told me. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, wild. I started watching just a wild it, game within, <laughs> within the first five minutes, I don't know, there was 100 penalty minutes. And it was just—it was incredible
1: oh, yeah. to see uh, what happened. Yeah, that one is—that uh, one just sort of—it it, it had been lost and no one—it existed amongst sort of tape traders for a long time, and then it just sort of suddenly appeared on uh, on YouTube. Um, <laughs> so that one's a, a wild one. The other—the other one, you know, and I've always said that this is maybe the greatest fight that I think that I've I've ever seen. Um, and it, it, interesting, it involves Ryan Vandenbush, who we just talked about. It was when it was a uh, who would it have been? It would have been Cornwall against Windsor, and Tom Sullivan and Ryan Vanderbush. Neither guy goes down, but it's uh, it, it's it's nonstop. Your jaw drops, and I remember talking to someone afterwards and i think the trainers had to cut the shoulder pads off fander bush because his arms were so tired he couldn't lift them up to get his shoulder pads to get his shoulder pads off that's the other one that i tend to direct people to nonetheless um listen i would love to have you back on and 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 talk more about uh yourself and, and the game as well and your observations and 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 more great stories uh, i think like anyone that knows you anyone that even just passingly knows your name uh, is happy that you're in a really good place, um, and like this this book, like Painkiller, is is one that I think um, all hockey fans should should read and and think about. Um, we all know people that are going through things. Uh, maybe it's someone listening right now themselves going through things, and I think this one is a really inspirational book of you know light at the end of the tunnel and coming out the other side. Uh, it took a while, but thanks, man, for finally making it on the program. Uh, really appreciate it. We'll stay in touch and we'll get you back on hopefully sooner than later.
3: Okay, Jeff, I appreciate you having me on, buddy, and uh, happy holidays to your family.
1: Thanks, you as well, uh, and all the best uh, in the new year. There he is, uh, Brant Myers, a former NHL played with Tampa, Philadelphia. Man, he was tough. San Jose. Uh, the Preds, the Capitals, and the Boston Bruins uh, played his junior hockey with Lethbridge uh, and originally with the Portland Winterhawks uh, as well. What uh, And it is a, I'll be honest, like I mentioned to him, it's a tough read. Like, it is a, a really hard, difficult read watching someone do that to themselves. But the whole time that you're reading it, you can kind of, you know, say to, your, say to yourself, I know this has a happy ending. At the end of all of this, there's a there's a good ending and there's a happy ending here, uh, for Brant Myers. Again, the book is called Painkiller: A Memoir, of Big League Addiction. Uh, Brant Myers. I mean, he talks quite bluntly about whether it's uh, whether it's alcohol, uh, whether it's cocaine, all of it, all documented in this book. Uh, I'll take a break. Come back. Talk to Mike Russo from The Athletic. Uh, the Minnesota Wild have now won five games in a row and. You wonder about a goalie controversy here in this one. Has Philip Gustafson taken over from Mark Andre Fleury? One of the many questions we have from Mike Russo. Uh, that's next as the Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network.
0: Everything
2: Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Lou. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This is the Jeff Merrick Show on the Sportsnet Radio Network.
1: Welcome back to the program. Don't look now, but the Minnesota Wild are good again. You know, there are some teams around the NHL that you just have kind of a hard time getting a handle on. And maybe the most confusing one is the St. Louis Blues. Good luck. Um, But Minnesota at times has kind of been one of those tough teams uh, to define or tough teams to sort of wrap your brain around, so that's why it's great to have the expertise of Mike Russo from The Athletic uh, to help straighten it all out. Uh, Mike, how are you today? Thanks as always for stopping by. Best of the season.
4: Well, uh, Minnesota's getting a blizzard, and it's like minus 15, and I'm in Anaheim, so today is a good day.
1: Uh, it's a good day not to be home I get it uh, I understand that first of all really nice piece on Ryan Reeves uh, at the Athletic I, I just, read it, uh, just read it as it came out and it's uh, anytime I can hear anytime I see the name Willard Reeves re- mentioned early in a piece I know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really enjoy it uh, one of our, our favorite CFLers uh, before we get into the Minnesota Wild uh, what did you think about Reeves before he joined Minnesota and what do you know now
4: well, you know, the one thing I've always liked about Reeves is he's a sports writer's dream. You know, in 2018, when I covered Vegas, before we had a Vegas Golden Knights beat writer, I got to cover them during their run in the Stanley Cup final, and he was one of those guys that he always flocked to the stall, and same thing with during those Blues games. But I get it. I mean, as a, as a you know, when you're an opposing fan, or an opposing player of Ryan Reeves, you're going to have some major opinions about him and his worth and whether or not he's clean or dirty. But that was the one thing that I enjoyed about this story that I wrote, uh, where I talked to Willard Reeves and his brother, uh, Ryan's brother, Jordan, who also is, he's a free agent right now, but played for Edmonton last year in the CFL is that Willard Reeves taught them to play clean, play hard, but play clean, go through a guy, but click play clean, um, never quit things like that. And I think it gives, uh, fans a little bit of an inkling about somebody that, you know, that is, is that I'm sure everybody that is a fan of it, or of hockey has an opinion, yay or nay, about. It. And so hopefully people get a better appreciation of Ryan as a person, as a player. I did a podcast with him a couple of weeks ago as well that I highly recommend people listening to. He's just a colorful guy. And and um, the other really sweet part of the story is that, you know, Jordan Reeves got into a lot of trouble as a kid, gangs, drugs, things like that. Ryan Reeves and his brother, who are best friends now, didn't speak to each other for two years. And one day, Ryan came home from Brandon, uh, where he's playing junior hockey. Jordan was in a big fight with his dad, had, had dropped out of school and he pulled him out for some tough love and they've been best friends ever since. And Jordan has kept himself most clean ever since. And Jordan basically uh, credits that conversation that he had with his brother is for saving him. And, and so hopefully people really get, um, you know, a true understanding of, 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 you know, what we always, you and I have talked about this before, Jordan, uh, uh, Jeff, is, is that, you know, we always look at fighters and players that play as hard as, as Ryan as somebody that it's, you know, off the ice must be the same way. But away from the rink, he's a very different person than the act that we always see on the ice. And he plays a role. And um, I think hopefully people get now a real understanding of what his heart is all about.
1: Yeah, you know, I just, uh, before he came on, I was just talking to Brant Myers, and he's that guy, too. So many tough guys are yep. exactly the same um, off the ice, the, uh, the, the the gentle giants. You know, the the interesting thing about this, um, well, one of the interesting things, and again, like you talk about sports writers' <laughs> dreams, um, some really interesting personalities on this Minnesota Wild team. and. You know, uh, I, I think most of us, uh, I've seen the, the the video about Jacob Middleton and what he wears or prefers not to wear around the dressing room, uh, around the guys. Do you have a, a, a thought on, on Jacob Middleton and where does he rank in your, you know, interesting players to cover?
4: Uh, right there at the tippy top. I'm um, actually doing a huge feature on on that runs December 27th that I've been working on for a couple months. Uh, had had lunch with him a couple times uh, during training camp and after the fact as well. And you know he's he's an old school guy. I mean this is somebody that when he signed his AHL deal in San Jose, he lived on the floor of a dining room of two teammates because he had no money. Um, he still to this day, even with his multi million dollar contract that he signed with the Wild owns like three t shirts and three pairs of jeans and just rotates them. He's a very simple guy. And um and he's the same yep. way in that locker room. A big part of the story is how it all you know, he doesn't wear anything under his jersey other than socks. No. Uh, he wears that and a jock strap. That is it. Yep. Yeah, nothing and uh you know, and players on the wild uh, you know I don't think they love it uh when he's just walking around the room, constantly naked but uh but they he is an absolute cartoon character uh with the mustache, and uh he is, what you see of him off the ice, um, when you interview him and things like that, that's the way he is at home as well. I mean, this is somebody that eloped in, eloped in Nashville with his wife this summer as well. So uh, just, it's, it's a really, really fun story. I'm excited for uh, Wild fans to finally get a look at it. And, again, it runs December 27th.
1: I'm very much looking forward to that one. I think my favorite part of that video is how Dean Evason just wanted no part of that conversation. Did not want to discuss. Yeah. <laughs> um, did not want to discuss Jacob uh, a, a, naked, a very naked and very comfortable Jacob Middleton uh, in his yep. room. Uh, okay, so um, this team now five in a row. And should I whisper goalie controversy? What's happening with with the netminders here?
4: Yeah, I don't think goalie controversy, but I think what we're going to do see, what we will see after the break, as long as Philip Gustafson keeps this up, is a lot more of Philip Gustafson. Um, he's just been, he's been one of the best goalies in the league since early to mid-November. Now they they did they have protected yep. him and insulated him really well, putting him in really good positions. But look, I mean, you know, he goes to the Vancouver in the second of back-to-back, a team that we know can score and has a lot of talent. Gets a 35-save shutout, and it's just continued ever since. Um, you know, back-to-back games here against Anaheim, San Jose, so obviously see a split of the goaltenders. But the Wild have a ton of games coming up in January, and they're going to need him to win games and play well. Um, but, you know, I think people forget, too, that Marc-Andre Fleury, his last couple starts, has been great for a while. Before he got hurt, he was outstanding as well and just hit a bit of a rut there coming back. So I don't think that we've seen a, a, a goaltender controversy, but I think what it will do, and Bill Guerin talked to me yeah. about this last week, is thats that, is that it will allow them to maybe overbake Jesper Wallstead in the minors, where maybe next year he'd be the number two to Flurry. Now all of a sudden, hey, if you get a 24-year-old Phil Gustafson that looks like he's got a future in this game and can play well, uh, they'll re-sign him and, and you know make him the backup, and it will allow them to really give Jesper Wallstead time to really mature in the minors.
1: You know, I really liked uh, the the pick of Wallstat. I uh, haven't checked in this season to see how he's doing. I'm suspecting you have. How is Wallstat's <laughs> season going so far? Because, you know, uh, listen, uh, I'm a I'm a, yeah. a big fan of how how Minnesota drafts. How's he doing? Uh, yeah,
4: up and down. I don't think it's very shocking. Uh, he's had to get used to the small ice. Um, he at early in the season he was one of their best goal scorers down there uh, he he scored that big uh big goal in the one game i think it was against yep. chicago or but, um, you know, in terms of stopping the puck, I mean, that team's had its issues this year. Um, you know, Marco Rossi's down there now, and they're trying to get him going. Um, and I think that, you know, what it shows is that, it, hey, it doesn't matter how uh, good of a goaltender you are or how, how decorated you are overseas, um, it still takes a while to really adjust as a young goalie for most guys. And so, you know, uh, Bill Guerin doesn't want... You know, this is probably a bad example to use right now because he's been much better this year, but like a Carter Hart situation where they, you know, you throw him in really, really early and don't give him a lot of uh, starts in the minors, and then it might really, yeah. uh, you know, hurt their development. Uh, you know, I think he wants to, um, even though Otinger never played like 100, um, like 100, uh, you know, NHL, like AHL starts, I think they want to kind of be be patient with him and uh, give him some time in the AHL and sort of follow that Ottinger plan. Um, and I, I think that's yep. the whole goal that the Wild do. But as long as uh, Fleury and Gustafson win games up here, it allows them to do that.
1: Uh, what's been the story through this, uh, this five-game winning streak for you? <laughs> I mean, there are some of the obvious ones, but what's been the story for Mike Russo?
4: Um, they're defending just tremendously right now. I think they've given up what five goals in the last four games. Uh, it feels like I don't even cover the team anymore. I've been I was down in Arizona, do, covered at the I was at the Buffalo Arizona and uh, Montreal Arizona games and got a taste of Mullet Arena and did a bunch of podcasts and stories that I'm working on down there. So I've missed the last two games, but they're defending really well. Caprice has been unbelievable. Erickson Eck is just yeah. playing outstanding. Um, You know, they're they're just, you know, like you said at the Open, Jeff, it's like with the Wild, it's the same thing every single year. It's like, you know, they they always go through these ruts where fans just, you know, uh, get all nervous on what type of team they are and they always find a way out of it and then they're good enough to at least get into the playoffs. And then it's just a matter of can they, you know, as we know, the broken record with his team, advance and go on a long playoff run. And so right now um, they are playing their best hockey in a division where it just feels like Dallas and Winnipeg keep on winning. And uh, they've got to keep on, uh, uh, keep on you, know, uh, uh, you know, getting points because the teams below them too, it's like, you know, you, you mm. lose one or two games and you're outside that top eight in the Western Conference right now.
1: That is a tough one. Uh, uh, let me end on this one. Um, we know that Bill Guerin is not shy. Bill Guerin is very bold. We saw that with the obvious moves, and they still have the contract <laughs> ramifications on their salary cap because of it. Um, but as trade deadline, like we're gonna, you know, flip the calendar here soon, and we're we'll looking at a new season. It's gonna be the, the the sprint to the trade deadline, the sprint to the playoffs, et cetera. What does Guerin go shopping for when the calendar flips here? I what do he, you
4: think? Yeah. I think a lot of it will depend on, on how this second half goes, not to state the obvious. But, you know, originally, like about three weeks ago, you know, he wanted to get a top six scorer. And he was actively looking. And then what happened is he found the prices are really high. And, the, and w- in, the, in terms of what the fits would be, this is a team that can't take on players with term. And, you know, but he doesn't yep. want to just go get a pending free agent now. He'd like to get somebody maybe with like a one year at a moderate deal left. And he just couldn't find it, and then it got to the point where it was very clear that Ryan Hartman was coming back in the lineup, and now he is back in the lineup. So if Ryan Hartman becomes that 34-goal scorer again, obviously he's not getting that this year after missing two months, but if he comes in somebody that it, it, it could go and chip in offensively, I don't think he's looking for that. The broken record with this team as for two decades is get, going to get that top center. There are going to be centers potentially available in yeah. free agency in, uh, by the trade deadline, and that's what I think that he would like to do. Now, right now, again, Goudreau is very important in this lineup. He's not coming out. Erickson Eck is Erickson Eck. But, you know, still, it's like Sam Steele is playing really well with Kaprizov and Zuccarello, but if they could find somebody to go put in that slot and maybe put Steele in a different position in the lineup, maybe even at wing, I think that that would be something they'd consider. But right now, Sam Steele's playing the best hockey that he's ever played in the National Hockey League, and I think what it's allowed Bill Guerin to do is take a deep breath Let what maybe were the pressing matters for this team three weeks ago, four weeks ago, now dissipate. See how this now matures the rest of the way. and Can Steele keep this up? Can Hartman score? And then, you know, I think that they'll be fine. The one area, too, is, is the blue line. It wouldn't shock me at all if he made a lateral move and traded Matt Dumba, but he would need to get a defenseman back in either that trade or a secondary trade that's ready to pounce up the
0: same way.
1: I was going to say i'm I'm almost going to warm you up here for a Dumba Horvat deal, both on, a, on, a, on expiring yeah. contracts and make the money wash should Should we throw Minnesota in the uh, in the Horvat sweepstakes we'll we'll end on that one.
4: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that right now Vancouver's going to get a haul for him, and the wild, as we just talked about, can't resign him. So what are you willing to give up? like Horvat would be absolutely perfect, but I don't know what Vancouver would have any use for with Dumba. Um, unless they really do think that they're you know, going to make the playoffs and that Dumbo would help right away. Um, again, they well would need a defenseman back. But for what I think, like Horvat, to me is somebody that every team in the league that needs a top center is going to go after, and there are going to be teams that could go after him yeah. that are going to have the cap space to maybe bring him back. And so I think that right now, Um, Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford think that they're going to get an absolute haul for him, um, including players right off another team's roster to throw into theirs. And so like, let's uh, the the price for for Horvat, if they're going to want somebody that's off another team's roster is going to have to be a heck of a lot more than Dumba. And I just don't think that Bill Guerin is going to be able to play ball in that type of conversation. But in terms of fit, he'd be absolutely perfect. I just don't see the fit in terms of, what the Wild would be able to give up yeah. to go get that deal compar- comparatively to what other teams would probably be able to give up. Yeah,
1: I think there are a few teams in that spot. Listen, uh, Mike, you're always busy. Always appreciate you making time for me here. Best of the holidays, uh, best in the new year, uh, and keep up the great work, and very much looking forward to this Jacob Middleton uh, piece that's coming out, one of the most interesting players in the NHL. Look forward to that one, Mike. You be well.
4: Yeah, you too, Jeff. See ya.
1: There he is, the great Mike Russo from The Athletic. Uh, The Ryan Reeves piece is out at The Athletic. It's really interesting. Um, Reeves is a very, and the whole family, right, is a really dynamic and and intriguing people. Um, And Jacob Middleton, if you don't know, (laughs) one of the characters, and I mean the characters of the game. You do not have to be a Minnesota Wild fan uh, to appreciate or enjoy Jacob Middleton. Um, and you don't have to be a nudist either. Although, in the case of Jacob Middleton, it helps. Okay, um, want to play something here for you as we conclude the program today? Uh, you may not know the name Nigel Kerwin, but he's, you know, he's someone that that knows where all the bodies are buried with the Tampa Bay Lightning organization because he's worked there. Since three weeks before the Tampa Bay Ottawa Senators expansion draft, he is the longest serving employee in the Tampa Bay Lightning organization. Elliot and I sat down with him a couple of days ago. Um, this podcast came out this morning, available at, uh, you know, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, have a listen. He's a fascinating guy. Uh, we could have gone on for hours upon hours. And if there's ever a, you know, someone that made a case for a part two, uh, it's Nigel. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, We'll come back after a couple of moments of this. Here's Nigel Kerwin, who's the video coach for the Tampa Bay Lightning, who traces his roots back to three weeks before the Tampa expansion draft. Enjoy this. I think Rick Dudley is one of the most interesting people in hockey. For sure. I am forever going back to the bandana and the Cincinnati Stingers. I am full-on Rick Dudley. Is it true that there was a time where he got right into feng shui Chinese wind water principle, interior design, and redesigned the tamper room and the gym and all that based on wind water principle.
2: I I don't know all the details of Feng Shui, but that is absolutely 100% true. (laughs) Yes, the locker room was red. You walked into our locker room and it was red and black, the, the striping. I know you've been in our locker yep. room. You know the locker room. So where the the blue stripes with the black trim on the side goes down the wall, mm-hmm. that for several years was red and black. Really? And it had to, everything to do. And again, I know nothing about feng sure, shui. Sure, sure. Yeah. But it had everything to do with feng shui. I know that there was, what was in the ce- There were things in the ceiling tiles. <laughs> like if you went into the ceiling tiles of the locker room, was it was it stones? There was something. There was a water fountain in the, in the gym. There was like one of those pebble garden waterfall yep. things that was plugged yeah. in that that was in the gym. And then there was uh, there was stuff in the ceiling tiles in the locker room itself, too. I don't remember what it was, but I know there was stuff in the ceiling. I think it was also rocks or something like that that were hidden there. And it was all yeah. feng shui related. But that's Do you remember how the true. players reacted. I think I remember about everyone reacting is everyone. Anytime you brought somebody to the locker room, like the family or friends or whatever, they always would. You know, how that puzzle looked like, <laughs> why is everything red and black? And you have to, like, you have to go like, well, our GM's into function. There's a way. waterfall over Yeah, and there's a waterfall in the, in, the, in the gym.
1: But Rick Dudley's one of my favorite people that I've ever come I think he's I, fascinating. I love man. Rick Dudley. He's uh, How many times, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming the answer is you have seen him. Describe his workouts. Well, first of all, he works out like four times. He, he's yes. not a guy you want to. He's always been like that.
2: He's a big man. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know how old he is now, but I would not want to fight him. He is a thick, strong guy. He worked out all the time. He's very intense. Yeah. Like I wasn't there for it, but I remember he ripped out a, a water fountain, he, uh, one of those water fountain things out of the wall once uh, in a game. He actually threatened to fire me one time for not staying out and drinking with him. <laughs> we were on the road to Philadelphia, and, uh, and he doesn't, he's not a drinker. Like he's not a big drinker, but one night he, he, he got into a couple, and uh, everyone kind of left. So I said, all right. One time I said, I got to go to bed. He's like, no, no, you're sitting here. I have another one. We have another one. We never drink. We we'll probably have another one. them." So I sat with him, had one. I said, okay, I got to go. He goes, no, you have, you have another I said, no, Rick, I'm, I'm going. Like, I'm done. And he actually got mad. He goes, You shit down there and you have another hair. Like he just, just growl <laughs> about G- it. Yes. And all you can think is, I've seen him doing shoulder <laughs> yeah. presses
1: before and I'm going to do whatever he says. But I blew him off. I kind of like, he's not,
2: he's not serious. And then I was like, No, I'm going to bed. He goes, You won't have a jaw tomorrow you don't sit down there. And Rick, you can't fire me for not having a drink. And he goes, Yes, I can. <laughs> I absolutely can. I sit down and. So uh, yeah, so he did, he, yeah, he did threaten me one time to fire me if I didn't have a drink with him. So and we felt it the next day. Let me put it that way. <laughs> so this is a perfect time for me to ask this question: What are the great stories about the Tampa Bay Lightning that have never been told? Tortorella is always interesting. What was he like to work for? Awesome. Yeah, he's not the ogre that everyone portrays him to mm-hmm. be. Like he, I understand he can sometimes be a little difficult with media, but to work for him, he's he's unreal. Like he's fantastic. Definitely one of my favorites. So. I got got into it with him a few times, but they're always funny when you when you get into it. So he just it was, forgets about it the next day, right? He, he's really good about like yeah. he gets into it with you and it's it's over with. One time we got on an airplane and uh, we just when we got computers for the first time, uh, we, we were making that switch and um, they were a little glitchy back then, so it was always giving us a little bit of problems. And he, the plane we sat on, I sat across from my my back was to the cockpit. And Jeff Reese, our goalie coach, is my left. And Craig Ramsey was in the other corner. There's four of us in that front compartment. And uh, he's just MFing me, like, because of the computer glitches. And he's just <laughs> giving it to me, giving it to me. And I had this bad habit. I mumble. Like, I do the uh, under my breath. I get it from my mom. And I started doing that. Not, And I never realized I'm doing it. And he saw me, right? And he goes, you got something you want to say to me? And I, now I'm caught, right? I'm like, oh, No. <laughs> He goes, you got something you want to say to me? Say it. And I'm like, no, 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 no. He goes, say it. Have some, i got to be careful what I say here. Have some guts guts, and say it. Mm. I'm like, no, no, no. And, he, and he's just needling me and needling me and needling me. And finally, I'm I'm losing it, right? Craig Ramsey and Jeffrey's aren't even paying attention. And they're so <laughs> used to him and I going at each other. And uh, finally, I say, you know what, Torts? There's times like this where I just want to punch you right in the freaking head. And he goes, well, just try it. Well, I'm right here. Freaking try it. I go, I will try. You keep running your mouth. I try it. I'm right here. Try it. I go, I will try. Run your mouth some more. I will try it. I'm not I'm swearing, by the way. He said <laughs> one of the greatest things i ever heard in my life. He goes, well, that seatbelt isn't unbuckle itself. Right, so <laughs> so now I'm yelling at him, but I start to giggle. Well, I'm doing it right, and he's yelling at me, and he starts to giggle. So we're yelling at each other, just swearing at each other, but we're not. We we're uh. no longer we're giggling and laughing the whole time. Craig Ramsey and Reese don't know what to make of it. They're just like, staring, like what the hell is going on over there? But that's how he was, you know, like that in the middle of this. Like I thought we're gonna. Once I thought we we're gonna go fight, and next thing I know, we're just laughing hysterically
1: as we're trying to curse each other out. Okay, so we do about an hour, and it's like that. That's Nigel Kerwin, uh, video coach for the Tampa Bay Lightning, the longest-serving member uh, of the Tampa Bay Lightning organization, going back to expansion draft. Spot quiz. Who did they take first? Wendell Young, the goaltender. Come on, y'all knew that. Um, Okay, so that's available on 32 Thoughts right now. The podcast uh, available wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, I want to wrap up here. With a couple of things that I want to mention to you, so I'm going to take a couple of days off, uh, the remainder of this week, and then next week, and then we'll get right back at it. And a couple of things, uh, people always ask me for book recommendations or what you're doing, and I still want to do this kind of book club idea that I've got bouncing around my brain, and and do this with with people that listen to the show and can participate. I just got kind of to figure out how to do it. Um, so there's a couple of books that I want to mention that I'm going to be going through over the holidays. Um, one of them, and I've wanted to get to this one for a while, and I want to have him on to talk about it, and it's probably really timely because I, I really believe that when the holidays are over and the trade freeze is done around the NHL, that we, we're we probably going to see some news coming out of Philadelphia and the Flyers organization. Uh, we've maybe seen some hints towards what the future can bring um, with the scratching most recently of Kevin Hayes, Um, so what I want to read is uh, The Last Sports Mogul by Alan Bass it is the story of Ed Snyder so I'm going to have that one that I'm reading and then another one that I'm looking forward to it's written by former junior hockey player Justin Davis uh, called Conflicted Scars Uh, so those are the two that I'm going to be reading over the holidays Um, and yeah i still got that book club idea in the back in the meantime for the next couple of days uh, Matt Marchese very capably will be handling the recreation here so thanks to Maddie as always, and thanks for stepping in for the next couple of days. Uh, thanks to Lance Kennedy and Jen Rolnick. Lance makes it sound good. Jen makes it look good. Uh, thanks to Elliot Friedman, James Boyd, Team Canada World Junior General Manager, uh, Brant Myers, and I really encourage you to, to read his book, Painkiller. Thanks, Brant, for stopping by. The great Mike Russo. Look forward to that militant piece. And thanks so much to you for stopping by uh, all these past months. A little bit of time off, coming back in the new year, rock and roll, ready to go. Have a great holiday break, and we'll talk to you soon across the Sportsnet radio network.